We are in Galatians chapter 4, which might surprise you a little bit because we finished chapter 4 last week, but we're going to be doubling back to something that we uh, looked at about a month ago. So if you've got your Bibles, go on up to, uh, open up to Galatians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand and our guys will bring one to your seat. We want to make sure that you have the Word of God there before you. Uh, God's Word is so essential to everything that we do as a church. We know how to worship Him rightly because He's revealed it to us in His Scriptures. So insofar as we are clinging to the Word, we are clinging to the truth, we are anchored to what is reliable and trustworthy. Uh, I want to encourage you, as we're getting close to the end of the year, um, we are often aware of the fact that people will set for themselves goals for the coming year, New Year's resolutions. And while you should be able to change what you're doing at any time during the year, we know that, that uh, if you're going to be using the New Year's as a, as a time to make a change and to improve, then maybe consider, uh, if you are a believer, if you've followed Christ your whole life, and you have never, or even for more than a year, and you've never read through the whole Scripture, you really owe it to yourself, and, and you owe it to the God who has saved you, to take the time to read that book from cover to cover, to read through God's Word. We don't want to be bumper sticker Christians who know the 20 or 30 scriptures that most often find their way into Hallmark cards, and that's it. We want to be the kind of Christians that are Christians of the book, that know the Word, that love the Word, and, uh, and consider that Word the foundation upon which we want to build our lives. So I would encourage you, if you've never done it, if you've never taken it upon yourself to read through the scripture in a year, it can be done fairly easily if you read four chapters uh, a day, um, which isn't too much. We're talking about 20 minutes of reading, probably then you can get through the whole, cha whole scripture in one year. We have reading plans on our website. If you go to the resources tab, it would be a great chance for you to, to, to make a commitment uh, to starting at the new year to read through the Word of God a little bit at a time. And if four chapters a day is too much for you, if that's just kind of intimidating, then determine and, and make the commitment to read a chapter a day. And if you're the head of your household, encourage your family. Say, we're going we're gonna to read one chapter of the Bible every day. We're going to think about God's Word together. We're going to let the Word speak to us. So I really encourage you to take the Word of God seriously this year, not just as it is preached to you, but also as God is, is using that Word to day by day edify you, make you stronger, and, uh, and, and clear up any misconceptions you have about Him. So this morning we're going to be circling back to a passage I preached a few weeks ago. We're going to examine the early part of Galatians 4 again, but this time we're going to look at it as slightly different focus and attention. When I first preached this in November on the 25th, the Apostle Paul was drawing our attention to two major redefinitions that occur when someone becomes a follower of Jesus. When somebody comes to terms with their sin and they come before the Lord God honestly and just lay them before the Lord and say, God, I know that I'm a sinner, but I also have come to learn that I can't overcome my sin by myself. I can't break free from it. I can't undo it. I can't do penance enough to wash it away. When we come before the Lord and put our lives in His hands, then He changes us. Transformation occurs. Trusting in Jesus Christ redefines our identity. It makes us a new person. We are born again in Jesus. And while we were spiritually dead before we encountered Christ, when we give our life to Him, He brings us spiritual vitality. We become a new individual, a person called by a new name. Uh, our identity is no longer as, a, as, a, as an enemy to God who is fighting against His kingdom. Now we are adopted into His family as sons and daughters of the King. Not only does our identity change, though, we also experience a drastic change in our freedom when we trust in Jesus Christ. 
We don't see freedom anymore as the ability to get away from God's rule and to rule our own life. Rather, we see freedom as the ability to live how God designed us to live, to live in His purpose and His plan. We are now free from the law that used to be like a slave master to us. We could not ever keep it fully. Now we are not under the law any longer. Now instead the law is to us like a beautiful picture of what God wants for us. And we live it out not to prove to God that we're worthy or to try to impress anyone. We live it out because we love the Lord and we love His law and trust Him. And we want to respond to Him by living in a way that reflects His character and His goodness. So all this redefining, all this transformation in the life of believers is only possible because of a miraculous historical event that occurred so many years ago in a little town called Bethlehem. We celebrate it year-round, but especially during Christmas time. It is the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, uh, who was born to a young Jewish virgin named Mary uh, that made these redefinitions possible. And so we will circle back again today to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to look specifically at verses 4 and 5 this morning, which point out the essential role that Advent of Jesus Christ, His coming to earth, plays in salvation. And so if you've got your Bible open, these are the words of the Apostle Paul inspired by God, beginning in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, in the passage that we just read, the Apostle Paul identifies the coming of Jesus as a critical juncture in the history of man's salvation. That phrase, the fullness of time, is an expression that tells us that God had determined in His will and according to His plan that several key factors needed to all fall into place before God would present sin's solution to the world. Remember that God knows all things, that nothing exists outside of his knowledge and understanding. Even before God created man, not only did God know that man would fall into sin and be estranged from him, God also knew the, exactly how he would redeem man and bring them near to him again, how he would overcome sin through the work of Jesus Christ. If Jesus was born in the fullness of time, that means that there was a time when time was not yet full. God had not yet determined to send Jesus, for example, during the time of Noah. Though we can read the scriptures and see that it was a wicked time, a time when everyone did what they thought was right in their own eyes and ignored the precepts of God. But God did not send Jesus at that time. Jesus did not come to earth during the wandering in the wilderness of Israel. He did not appear at the establishment of the promised land. Jesus did not take on human flesh during the time of the exile. Though those were all important points in the history of salvation, there was something about the exact state of reality roughly 2,000 years ago that made it the perfect time for Jesus to leave His throne in heaven and join us here on earth. In trying to make sense of the phrase, the fullness of time, many scholars have pointed out several cultural conditions that had come to exist just at the turn of the millennium, that in a practical sense made the time of the incarnation of Jesus just right for the gospel to spread. The good news of salvation through the work of Jesus would not be for the nation of Israel alone. 
Up to that point, God had primarily worked through his chosen representatives. And it was through them that God intended to shine his holy light into the nations of the world. But the coming of Christ would open the truth to every people group in existence. We recall that some of the first people to know about the birth of Jesus were a group of shepherds, just common people, working men, who happened to be keeping watch over their flock of sheep at night, when an angel suddenly appeared to them and delivered a heavenly message. And in Luke chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, is recorded for us. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, not just for Israel, but for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So this good news is joy to the world. Not just to one nation of the world, but joy to the entire world. No matter who you are, you need only put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and He will allow you into the family of God. So in order for this coming salvation to reach the world, there would need to be ways for it to effectively get beyond the borders and boundaries of the Holy Land of Israel. With that in mind, historians point out that Roman world dominance that was true of culture in the time of Jesus provided a cultural connection of sorts, a common ground that would allow people under the umbrella of Rome to interact more freely with one another. At the time of Jesus' birth, roughly 70 million people, or one-third of the entire earth's population, was under the leadership of the Roman Empire. Though the empire was very diverse, there was a common cultural thread that provided a connection and a frame of reference for those who lived under the emperor's rule. The Greek language dominated commerce, politics, and learning to such a degree that it became nearly a universal language. The fact that most people could communicate with one another, they would keep their own language, but they also, by necessity, learned the Greek language so that they could participate in the empire that ruled them. And that meant that people from different cultures, from different backgrounds, could communicate with one another, even if uh, Greek was a secondary dialect to them. And that made the transfer of the gospel message more effective from people group to people group. There was a relative peace over the Roman Empire for about 200 years, from about 50 B.C. to about 150 A.D. that they called the Pax Romana, which was a time when Rome was so mighty and so strong that very few people groups dared to even fight against them. This peace that was ongoing and lasting wasn't perfect. There were skirmishes and little battles here and there, but it provided such an atmosphere of tranquility that people could put their focus, their attention, and their time into things such as education and philosophy and theology. These ideas could grow and flourish in the absence of peril and war and danger. And a network of roads that were constructed to ease commerce from one part of the empire to another also provided safer and faster travel, which aided the spread of the gospel and the expansion of the early church through mission work. Finally, there were advances in writing mediums, better preservation of the written word that helped the Old and eventually the New Testaments become more readily available to people, easier to copy, and more likely to last through the generations. And while each of these historical conditions played a very beneficial role, none of them 
were necessarily essential to the coming of Jesus Christ. We must be careful not to make the mistake of thinking of God in human terms. Time is bigger than you or than me. We are, in many ways, servants of time. Time waits for no man. But God is not merely a man. And God has no need to wait for time. So he did not have to sit around and hope that everything would fall into place and then finally when it did, say, okay, now I can send my son because everything is perfect. No, that is not how it happened for him. When uh, my wife Missy and I and our newborn son Adam, we were just a brand new family, when we first uh, decided to come and settle into Antioch, in order for us to buy a home here in the East Bay on one salary, essentially a perfect storm of circumstances had to fall into place. When we came and looked at the, the area and we looked at home prices, we just shook our heads and said, we're just not going to own a home. We're going to have to rent, you know, and hope that we can scrape enough together just to rent a place around here. But then um, the housing market in California just absolutely tanked, uh, in part because of subprime lending and all these, these bad loans that uh, came up empty. People began to file bankruptcy. People began to stop paying their mortgages. A year and a half into that economic downturn, nearly a third of the homes in Antioch were foreclosures on the market at a given time. That drastic increase in supply of available homes drove demand way down and prices way down. Um, I finished school, my master's degree, just before these events. And the church was gracious and kind to my family by bringing me on to staff full-time at that moment. Also, the, the passing of a family member and Missy's side of the family enabled us to have a little bit of money that made a, a, a decent down payment on a home. All these factors fell into place, you know, some would say coincidentally. I think the Lord had a, a hand at play in these things. We were definitely blessed by them. But we would really have been hard-pressed uh, hard to try to buy a house of our own had it not been for all these different factors that were outside of our control. We were essentially at the whim of time. But in contrast, God was not in such a vulnerable situation that he had to wait for the state of the world events to reach their optimal levels before he could send the Messiah. The time was full because God had ordained it to be full, not because God waited around until it happened to be so. If these cultural events aided the rapid expansion of the message of salvation, I have no doubt that they did, then let us realize that they all fell into place because the sovereign God, who is Lord over all things, orchestrated them to do so. Not just because world events happened to play out the way that they did. Rather than God waiting on the circumstances of his creation to become just perfect, creation was waiting on God to reveal the timing of his promise. See, God had given clear indication to his chosen people that he had a plan to redeem mankind. But that plan was not laid out in absolute clear detail for Israel, nor did the timing of God's solution become apparent to them. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 11, speaks of this time of wondering and waiting. It says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So these prophets over the ages, and we can see evidence of it in the, New, in the Old Testament, 
They knew that God was going to send a Redeemer. They knew to be on the lookout for this Messiah, this perfect King that could not be disposed, this perfect King that would obey God in all ways. But they didn't know when He was going to come. And they weren't entirely sure how God was going to accomplish that promise of bringing a Savior. The fact that this person in time of salvation was not clear caused some over time to eventually think it might never come. People lost their focus. They began to drift away from the expectation of this Savior that God had said would one day come. Mankind is not a naturally patient creature. And the Lord urged His people through the prophet Habakkuk to continue waiting, to continue watching carefully, to not take their eyes off of the promise because God knew the time and God knew how He would send His Redeemer even if He had not revealed it to His people yet. Habakkuk 2, verses 2 through 3. The prophet says, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. This passage from Habakkuk, which was written hundreds of years before Jesus came, encouraged the Israelites to trust that God's promises would be fulfilled even if they could not see how or when. God always keeps His promises. He cannot lie. And so though it may seem slow to us, there is no true delay. God had ordained when it would happen and it would come to pass on His schedule, not ours. Jesus Himself confirmed that when He came to this earth and began His earthly ministry, that the fulfillment of time had come. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, Jesus um, is, is about to speak to the people. It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So it is best to see this fullness of time concept not as the perfect alignment of temporal circumstances that gave the church a solid chance to survive, but rather as the specific time that God had ordered and foreordained to work salvation history out in the way that would fulfill His perfect promises. Galatians 4, 4-5 through 5 confirms many essential truths that help us to understand the framework of God's plan for redemption. We learn by reading these passages that the anointed one that God had decided to send would be nothing less than God's own son. The sonship of God is very, very critical for our understanding of salvation. When we think about Jesus being the son of God, we have to try to get beyond the sense that we are used to thinking of sons in. God did not create Jesus. I have five sons of my own and they didn't exist before they were conceived by my wife and I. But we cannot think about Jesus' sonship exactly the same way because Jesus is not a created being. While Mary serves as Jesus' earthly mother, his birth in Bethlehem did not mark the beginning of his existence. We read in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-8, through eight, Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point 
of death, even death on a cross. So that passage from Philippians written by the Apostle Paul reminds us that Jesus didn't start existing when Mary was conceived by the Holy Spirit, that he in fact existed far before that, far before time had even been invented. Christ eternally existed with God the Father in the form of God. He didn't exist in the form of man prior to coming to the earth. He existed in the form of God. And in fact, he has always been. Though we are currently celebrating the earthly birth of Jesus Christ, there is no cosmic equivalent to that. There was not a time when Jesus was brought into being in a heavenly sense. Rather, he existed before time with God. He has always been. So Jesus did not proceed from the Father in the sense that he was conceived by him. But rather, Jesus is spoken of as the Son of God because he is of the same substance of the Father. He is one with him. He is in complete agreement with him. And in coming to earth and taking on a human body and a human nature, Jesus is sent by God the Father as a representative capacity, in a representative capacity. The parable that tells of, uh, of a vineyard, Jesus shares it in Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, kind of sheds some light on this. Jesus talks about a vineyard owner who has a great piece of land and he sets up a wonderful vineyard and he hires hired hands to come in and run this vineyard for him. They do all of the, the difficult work and, and they're going to be paid for their, their, their labors. And then he goes off to tend to other business and he allows them to run that vineyard for the year. And when the time for harvest comes, he sends word through a messenger that it is time for them to pick the grapes, to harvest them, and to bring them to market so that a profit can be made. But those men who were hired to take care of the vineyard decide that they don't want to listen to this this owner of the vineyard, that they would rather keep the harvest for themselves. And so they severely beat the messenger and send him back bloodied to the owner of the vineyard. The owner of the vineyard is upset by this, so he sends another messenger. Not only do they beat that messenger, but they murder him. So this man, of course, is distraught. He's upset. He wants to see justice done. So he sends his most trusted advisor. He sends his own son. And the scripture says that in that parable... The, the wicked employees actually murdered the son of the vineyard owner. And this was a picture of Jesus Christ coming to earth, being a representative of the Father. He was here on God's behalf to show us the truth, to show us the way, and to make that path clear through his personal sacrifice. We read in Scripture the importance of God's sonship. In Luke chapter 9.20, when Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, who do people say that I am? And they give him various answers, speculations that the people have made, but he says, but who do you say that I am? And the disciples respond through their spokesman Peter. He says, we believe that truly you are the Son of God. They saw Jesus as God in the flesh, as the Son, one who proceeds from the Father. And then even if you fast forward to his trial at the end of his days here on earth, the people that he stood before, these high priests who had accused him of sin, could not really pin him down. And they said, are you or are you not the Son of God? And he says, truly it is as you say. And at that point in John 19, 7, they said, we have a law, and since this man has said that he is the Son of God, he has committed blasphemy, he must be put to death. Jesus' claim to be the Son of God was more than just to be the creation of God, it was he was saying that he was of the same substance as God. That is what infuriated the people to such a degree that they would put him to death. 
the time had come to reveal more distinct, in more distinct ways the triune nature of God. When Jesus came to this planet, was born, and took on human flesh, we began to see more clearly how very unique God is from us. We understand human existence from our perspective. I am a being, and I exist with a certain kind of nature. I have a human nature. That's how my being is expressed to the world. And so I can think, I can remember, I can speak, I can feel, I can have compassion, I can reason abstractly. There are all these different things that make me a human being. God is a being, but He exists not with one nature, but with three simultaneously. And it's hard for us to, to grasp that, but it is the truth of who God is, and it's part of what makes Him so much more glorious than we can even comprehend. That He has eternally existed as God the Father, and at the same time, God the Son. And at the same time, God the Holy Spirit. And these three persons are perfectly unified as one God that expresses itself in three persons. Each one of those persons has different roles. Each one of them has different parts that they play in salvation. But they are all unified as one God. Certainly uh, in the Old Testament, people did not quite grasp this concept of the Trinity very, very, very soundly. And... They did not see this three-in-one personhood of, of the Lord God. There was discussion, of course, in the Old Testament regarding the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit would come and fill people and be used to give them power. His presence and work among the people of God is well documented in the Old Testament. But we don't have much uh, evidence or indication from Scripture that the people of the Old Testament saw this Holy Spirit as a distinct person of God yet. They generally seem to understand the Holy Spirit as being the power of God, because God had not yet revealed enough of the Trinity for people to understand it otherwise. See, the Word of God is what we call a progressive revelation. When God began to reveal Himself to people, He didn't show all of who He was. He has not yet still shown all of who He was to us. We couldn't handle it. So He showed a little bit at first, and then began to reveal more and more. And as time goes by, as Scripture is unfolded before us, the inspired revelation of God gives us more puzzles to fit into this picture of who, more puzzle pieces to fit into this picture of who God is. And so now in the New Testament, we have a better chance of understanding this unique personhood of God, that He is not just one, but He is three in one. We see more of this picture revealed in the Incarnation, because God here takes on flesh being conceived in a miraculous and supernatural way, growing to perform supernatural signs and wonders that, uh, that only God could do, all while praying to God the Father in heaven and interacting with Him in such a way as to show that the Father and the Son are distinct in personhood. God the Father is not Emmanuel. We can't call God Emmanuel because Emmanuel is the name that only applies to Jesus. Jesus is the person of God that has come to be with us, right? And then later Jesus will go on in his ministry to promise the coming of the Holy Spirit, showing that the three persons of the Godhead, while perfectly unified, are not the exact same person. It is likely a mercy that God did not choose to reveal in a definitive way the distinct persons of Je person of Jesus in the Old Testament, choosing instead to refer to him in reference to his future fulfillment of prophecy because not enough information had been revealed for man to grasp it yet. But when the fullness of time had come, the sonship of Jesus would be revealed to the world, and this idea of the Trinity would begin to take on a more definitive shape for us.
Galatians would go on to show that not only was this one sent of God God's son, but the Savior would also be born of a woman. In the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, the story of Jesus coming both contained uh, long genealogies, which are records of a person's family lineage. Um, in the book of Matthew, uh, we have verses 1 through 17, which traces the lineage of Jesus Christ back through the King David and to Abraham, the father of Israel. Jesus would fulfill God's Old Testament promises to bring the Messiah from the line of Abraham through Jesus Christ. And so he proves here in Matthew that Jesus has a connection to this bloodline. God revealed that it was his will to provide a savior king from that particular lineage of, of a certain distinct people. Secondly, we see that Christ would have an impact not only on Israel, but on the whole of the world. The book of Luke contains a genealogy that traces his lineage not just back through Abraham, but all the way to Adam, the first man, to indicate to us that Jesus would not just be the Savior of the Jews, but he would be the Savior to all who would put their faith and trust in him. When God had revealed his plan for salvation for the very first time, he made it clear that the solution would come through the offspring of woman. We see it in, in Genesis chapter 3, very, very early in the scripture, where the Lord God said to the serpent who had deceived Adam and Eve, he said, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We get, we get a, a glimpse of God's perfect plan, even in the third chapter of the Bible. All the way back in the Garden of Eden, God has already known that the fall of man would be a serious separating factor that would need to be resolved through his divine intervention through Jesus Christ. And he tells us that this one who would intervene would be born of the, of, uh, born of the seed of woman. So the humanity of Jesus was necessary for the fulfillment of justice. In order for a sacrifice to be made on behalf of the human race, the sacrifice would need to come from the human race. Throughout the Old Testament, we see sacrifices commanded of the people of Israel, but they were bulls and lambs and doves, animals that do not bear the image of God. The only true sacrifice that would satisfy God's wrath of sin on a man would be the sacrifice of a holy man. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 4 through 7, it says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Jesus took on human flesh, being born of a woman, so that in human form he could make a sacrifice that was sufficient to save human beings. He was not just an example for us, though that was an important part of his ministry. But his body crushed for us, whipped for us, pierced through for us, and hung on a cross, served as a legal substitute for the penalty of death that we owed to our just God. Jesus was born under woman. He was also born under a particular kind of woman. He was born under the law, wasn't he? And Jesus was not just ethnically an Israelite, but he was religiously Jewish through and through. Because of this, Jesus was bound by covenant 
to live according to the laws that God had given to Israel through Moses, his servant. Jesus is under the obligation to keep every one of those laws, just as every Jewish person was. But unlike every other person born under the law, Jesus did what had never been done. He lived according to those laws and in all ways fulfilled through his active and his passive obedience the law in, in the ways that he fulfilled the scripture. When I say that he was passive, it means that he refused to do the things that God prohibited in his word. But it went beyond that. It was also part of his active obedience that God did in all things righteousness. All his words, all his actions were obediently subservient to God and glorifying to the one who sent him. So Jesus is born under the law. But because he is able to fulfill that law, he rises above the law. He worshipped on the Sabbath. His dietary laws were never violated. The temple worship was something that he participated in. He was pure as pure can be. He fulfilled the law of Moses. Verse 15 of Hebrews chapter 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So this Jesus Christ deserved no death. If he had not done so, he would have not been able to accomplish the mission that he came to earth to accomplish. Going before the Lord God to offer himself, God would have said, your sin is your own burden. You must pay for your own sin. But because Jesus had no sin of his own, he was able to come and offer up his perfect body as a substitute for our imperfect bodies. Jesus is born of the law, and he was born for a purpose, to redeem those who were also under the law. The advent of Jesus is not a visit. It is not a fact-gathering expedition where Jesus comes to earth and, and looks at what people are doing and then comes back to give a report to the Father. Rather, it is a rescue mission. When we sing that, the, the popular refrain in, in hymns during Christmas song, O oh, come, oh, come, let us adore him. We are, to be perfectly clear, not called to adore this baby Jesus as we would adore one of the babies in our nursery. We're not coming to adore Jesus because he's cute and because he's novel. We're coming to adore Jesus because he loved us to such a degree that he was willing to leave the very comforts of heaven, take on human flesh, and be crushed for our iniquities on our behalf. This redemption makes our redefinition possible. We who were enemies are now seated at the table with him, enjoying God's fellowship and grace. Jesus didn't just come to earth to impress us with his holiness. He came to use his holiness to buy us back for God. He redeemed us. The idea of Jesus, God Almighty, eternally powerful in all-knowing, wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a lowly manger, is a wonderfully complicated and perplexed image, isn't it? To think about the God of all creation being held in the arms of a, a young teenage Jewish woman, it almost doesn't make sense. The irony of it, the contrast that exists in that one moment. There's a song that we, uh, we haven't yet done here at church. Maybe we'll do it next Christmas season. It's from a band I appreciate called uh, Citizens and Saints. And the song is titled, Come and Stand Amazed. I want us to think about the lyrics of this song because I feel like it really captures the irony of divinity in human form. 
It says, come and stand amazed, you people. See how God has reconciled. See his plans of love accomplished. See his gift, this newborn child. See the mighty, weak and tender. See the word who now is mute. See the sovereign without splendor. See the fullness, destitute. Keep those words up there for just a moment as we think about them for a second. God has reconciled us through his son Jesus Christ. And in doing so, this newborn child that he gives as a gift to the world is the mightiest being in all of existence and yet he stands before us or lays before us in a manger weak and tender, absolutely vulnerable. He is the word of God and yet he cannot even speak. He's mute as a baby. He has not even learned to speak yet. He is the sovereign over all things, ruler and king over the universe, but he is in a lowly manger without splendor. No, no great fanfare, no royal procession. The fullness of God is now destitute before us in the manger. The next verse goes on to say, See how humankind received him. See him wrapped in swaddling bands, who as Lord of all creation rules the wind by his commands. See him lying in a manger without sign of reasoning. Word of God to flesh surrender. He is wisdom's crown, our king. This little baby didn't even seem to be able to think through the, 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 the circumstances of life. And yet in him the fullness of Godhood dwelt. What an ironic and interesting perplex image. It is in some ways a dangerous image. It is dangerous because many who look upon the manger are tempted to keep in their minds Jesus in this baby form. They like the safety of God being defenseless, of being no threat to them. Yet this baby who was born in Bethlehem and was swaddled in a manger does not stay in such a vulnerable state, does he? He grows to be a man. And in his growing, he is obedient in every point to the laws that God commands of his people. He grows to be a man of truth, a man who stands valiantly before those who would accuse him. For sure, Jesus came through Bethlehem, but he came to end up at Calvary. That baby would survive King Herod's attempts to assassinate him. By the mighty preserving hand of God, the baby would grow and mature and would one day be able to face the direct temptations of the devil himself in the wilderness and not give in to sin. That Jesus would stand firm in truth, never backing down from the challenges of those who were threatened by his clear message of repentance. And when the fullness of time had come, that God in the flesh would stand bravely before the chief priests, accused of sins that he did not commit, but willing to face the penalty of punishment and death so that he might set free a wretch like us. If God has determined to save you from your sin, if you are a part of his chosen people, then there will be a time in your life when the fullness of time will come to you. There will be a time when God will orchestrate the events of your life in such a way that you will begin to see clearly how your sin has separated you from God. And then in humility, you will begin to understand that no matter how hard you work to make your way back to God, that you'll never be able to earn your place with Him. If God has set you aside for eternity, 
then there will become a, a point in your life when you will understand, when you will see and know that without Jesus, you will be forever lost from God. I pray that as this holiday season is upon us, and as we see the beauty of Jesus Christ taking on flesh and coming to live a perfect life on our behalf, that if you have not yet committed yourself to the Lord Jesus, that you would consider today that you stand before God vulnerable, that you stand before God without the protection and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Perhaps even this time, this morning, was God's ordained moment for you to see that you truly need to walk with the Lord God. Today can be the day of salvation for you. Sitting before uh, you in the chairs, um, the backs of the chairs, are little cards that we, we provide for our people who would like to share with us a prayer request or a praise that we could be lifting up to the Lord. There's also a little small section on there that you can mark off. If you're interested in knowing more about giving your life to Christ, perhaps you have heard of Jesus, you've, you've gone through Christmas after Christmas and had a vague idea of what it meant, but you never truly knew your need to give your life over to Jesus so that he might become a sacrifice before God for you. If today is the day that the Lord is revealing that to you and opening your eyes to your need for Christ, then you are becoming, you're becoming humble to the fact that you need him. But I would encourage you to write on that little card that you want to know more about Jesus and put it in a little metal box in the back of the wall before you leave the door there. We would love to contact you and get together with you and talk to you, to you about what it means to have a relationship with Christ. We have so many gifts that we'll unwrap this holiday season. Expressions of love from our family and from our friends. And they will all put a smile on our face for a time. But how glorious would it be if this Christmas was the time of year that you received the eternal gift of Jesus Christ as Lord. To trust Him as your Savior is to receive the gift of life that can never be taken away from you, that will never uh, run out of fashion, that will never fade away or need to be replaced. Jesus Christ is God's greatest gift to mankind. And he came so many years ago in such a humble and simple way to show that God loves us enough that he would send his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. I pray that you will leave this place knowing that you have eternal life. Would you bow your heads with me as we close in a word of prayer, and then we're going to sing one more song before we exit.